and if I look like I can't see it's because I can't see. <laughs> so, <clears throat> uh, yeah, so I'm going to be talking about empathy, and this is based on some articles that I've written um, in the context of human beings and moral psychology. And also, I'm working on a book on empathy. And so, any feedback that you have is very welcome in relation to that book because these themes will be there too. Um, I hope you can see this text in the back as well. Can you? Almost? <laughs> so, empathy is usually, I mean, empathy is used a lot these days as a term. People talk about empathy all the time, also in philosophy. And this has to do with the effective turn that has taken place in various sciences. People are referring to emotions and affects. And empathy is there often in those conversations, in, in those debates. Empathy is constantly being referred to more and more, to an extent that it's suffering some form of um, inflation. Um, the main problem with this is that people seem to assume what empathy means without actually defining it. So we all have a sense of what empathy must mean, but it's rarely actually defined, and this is a major problem. It's um, something that seems to touch almost all literature that has to do with empathy. It's not being defined. Now this um, definition problem stems from the fact that usually empathy is simply seen as feeling with another. So it's presumed that this is what empathy is. We, we feel with others. Sympathy is feeling for another. Empathy is feeling with. But even this doesn't catch all the different nuances, all the distinctions that we could make within feeling with for another. And there are at least over 10 mutually contradictory definitions of empathy in contemporary literature. In social psychology, empathy is constantly mentioned and often in awfully contradictory ways. So people write about empathy without actually defining it and then they have huge debates about who's right. And miraculously nobody seems to understand that the debates have to do with lack of understanding of the definition of empathy. Now here are some examples. Franz de Waal is relevant to the animal context because he's a primatologist. And he defines empathy as a capacity to be affected by someone the capacity to assess the reasons for the other's mental state and the capacity to identify with the other and adopt her perspective. So we feel with another, understand why they are feeling that way and identify with that state. Uh, Desertie and Jackson, who are social psychologists, argue that empathy is an effective response that has to do with our capacity to understand their viewpoint. And then finally, emotion regulation, which means that we don't simply resonate with them, but we also regulate our own emotive response to the state of the other. And a third example, these are just examples to show how various definitions there are of empathy and how often they're quite complicated and perhaps too pluralistic. They seem to get things confused. So there's a third example from Wignemund and others, and it states that empathy is an effective state in which we, we, uh, in which we uh, relate to the mental state of the other as an object of our intention, which is sparked by the observation or imagination concerning the mental state of another, and which, in which we understand that the other is the source of our emotive response. 
So these are very different understandings of empathy. I'm not going to go into them. Instead, I'm going to ask which of these five definitions might be fruitful for moral psychology and particularly understanding other animals. So philosophically, there seems to be five relevant definitions of empathy from the viewpoint of moral agency. This is the reference point now, morality, moral agency, which forms of empathy serve and facilitate our understanding of, our moral or normative understanding of others, which of them facilitate moral agency in ourselves. So I'm going to be talking about effective empathy, cognitive empathy, projective empathy, and embodied empathy. And finally, mention the fifth one, which is here still as a secret. It's uh, something that I have come up with myself. It's reflective empathy. So I'm going to be going through these first four and then five different definitions twice. I'm going to mention them twice. First, I'm going to just skim through what they mean. And secondly, I'm going to have a look at what sort of, what sort of a relevance they could have for moral agency. Now, before continuing, I'm just going to give a brief set of criteria for what I understand moral agency to mean. So if moral agency is the reference point, we of course have to understand what that agency is. And this is a really simplistic way of approaching moral agency. First, it has to do with awareness and avoidance of harm. Omnipotent beings do not need morality. We need to be vulnerable, we need to understand the vulnerability of others. This, this is the first criteria. The second criteria is the ability to form and follow moral judgments or judgments. We need to have the capacity to have some sorts of beliefs concerning others and ourselves and how we ought to relate to those others. The third criteria is other directedness. And this is something that I have emphasized in my research into empathy. Other directedness has to do with our ability to be intentional towards the other instead of constantly merely interpreting that other from the viewpoint of ourselves. So we're not self-directed in morality, we're clearly other-directed. We, we have an inclination to take, to take into consideration their mental states. And fourth criteria is openness, and this has to do with understanding difference in others, and the capacity to interpret others outside our self-directed needs or interests or wants or beliefs, whatever, you could list a whole horde, whole horde of self-directed tendencies or attitudes here. Openness has to do with a sense of exposure to the difference or, and even opacity in others. So here's a brief quote from Sean Gallagher which highlights the importance of the two last criteria. I'm open to the experience and the life of the other in their context, as I can understand it, not in terms of my own narrow experience, but in terms that, I, that can be drawn from a diversity of narratives that inform my understanding. So we are constantly aimed with our attention toward the other, and we are open to their difference, their specific, particular way of relating to the reality. Now the question then is, which forms of empathy can go inhabit and support and facilitate these criteria of moral agency. And in particular, I'm going to be paying attention to which forms of empathy 
can suit the last two requirements? Which of them can suit and facilitate other directedness and openness? Now to the actual different interpretations of empathy. First, effective empathy. Effective empathy is something that has been mainly talked of recently. There's been a surge of, or an explosion of research that has to do with effective empathy. Sometimes it's called emotive empathy, but effective empathy is more inclusive as a term. And it simply consists of resonating with the mental states of another. We instantly resonate with the emotions or experiences of another being. Immediacy here is a key term. This is not based on inference or perception, but it's an emotive, immediate mental state in ourselves. This might sound somehow, and probably previously has sounded somehow mystical, but there's now a lot of neurological and psychiatric support for this. We have the so-called mirror neurons, which activate and instantly give us a sense of resonation with others. When we perceive pain in another, the areas in our own brains that have to do with pain regulation are firing up. This is a heavily immediate response. And resonation here, of course, has to do with how we are flowing with the others. If we were reeds in a water, the waves of the water hit us and the reefs start to move with those waves. This is resonation. And this is what effective empathy, in its most simplistic sense, has to do with. Not a mystical state, not something that's just a sense of perhaps happening. This is something that we, all of us, I'm going to get into some groups of people who actually do like it, but most, most of us have this, and I hope everybody in this room has this for reasons that I will expli expli explicate later. This is happening all the time. In fact, you are now resonating with me to a certain extent. All of you, hopefully. Please. <laughs> with my eye infection and everything. Now, I mentioned that this is a recent concept, but of course it has been talked of in the past by philosophers. I'm going to be mentioning various classic philosophers here. None of them used the term empathy as such. Well, some of them didn't use the word empathy, they used the word sympathy. And this is because the word empathy is a relatively recent um, construction. But they used the word sympathy in ways that are akin, quite similar, and I'd say equal to the ways that we now speak of empathy. And one of these characters was David Hume. In his treatise, he spoke of effective empathy. He described sympathy in ways that contemporary theorists talk of effective empathy with. Now first he highlighted the moral significance of effective empathy. Here's a quote from him. He really kind of picked it up. He thought that this is the basis of moral agency. And there's a quote, No quality of human nature is more remarkable, both in itself and in, in its consequences, than the propensity we have to sympathize with others and to receive by communication their inclinations and sentiments, however different from or even contrary to our own. So this is something astonishing, something that humanity is based on. This is a truly remarkable, absolutely astounding capacity for Hume. 
it makes us moral in the last, last uh, most fundamental sense. Now for Hume, empathy was resignation. There's another quote, minds can be mirrors to one another, not only because they reflect each other's emotions, but also because those rays of, pa rays of passions, sentiments and opinions may often be reverberated. Reverberation is the same as resonation. So ultimately for him, when he spoke of sympathy, he was speaking of effective empathy, the capacity we have to resonate with others. <coughs> this was the most remarkable quality of hum humanity. And he went so far as to suggest that this is also an accurate perception of others. That this is not projection or um, construction or something that's based on imagination, but rather we actually grasp and comprehend the experiences of others and they are repeated in ourselves in their original form. So he said empathy can have such a degree, and for, degree of force and vivacity as to become the very passion itself and produce an equal emotion as any original affection. So if I now started crying and you started crying, you would feel my suffering. This is Hume's claim. This of course is quite a strong claim to make. Now how this happens for Hume was quite simple. First we have the impression of the other which here means the sensory perception of the emotion of the other. We observe their behavior. Secondly, we form an idea of that impression and the content that the impression expresses. So you see, for instance, joy in my behavior, and then you form the idea of joy. And the last, the third step, is that this idea travels into your own bodies and becomes the original effect or experience. So the impression that you saw in me is suddenly in you, after it has travelled through the idea into your own bodies. And there's an, again a quote, I promise I won't be giving so many quotes in a, in a while. It is indeed evident that when we sympathise with the passions and sentiments of others, those movements appear at first in our mind as mere ideas and are conceived to belong to another person, as we conceive any other matter of fact. It is also evident that the ideas of the affections of others are converted into the very impressions they represent. So this is a very simple form of contagion. Your emotions become mine after they have become ideas in my mind. And it's remarkable how closely the contemporary term effective empathy um, well, resonates with Hume's definition. And it's also remarkable how people do not know of this. So when contemporary social psychologists or psych psychiatrists or neurobiologists talk of effective empathy as a recent revelation, they have no idea that this dude from a few centuries ago was talking about the exact same phenomenon as the very basis of moral agency. Next, cognitive empathy. So this is the second definition of empathy that seems to be not only very common, but also crucial to our understanding of morality. Cognitive empathy is almost the opposite of effective empathy. It has to do with the neutral perceiving or inferring of the mental states of other beings. 
So we perceive, instantly perceive, or with some delay infer, what the other must be going through. And here neutrality is a key concept. We do not resonate with what we witness. So if you, if I now was to start to cry, and one of you felt absolutely nothing but clearly perceived what's going on, you would be a perfect instance of cognitive empathy. Now, cognitive empathy is usually in philosophical literature understood to require a theory of mind. So we have to have a comprehension of what it is to have a mind. And also to have a fairly complex understanding of the minds of others, to have a theory concerning the mental states of others. Perception doesn't require this so much, but inference clearly does. And we are the better at cognitive empathy, the more elaborate our theory of mind is. So the more information I have of another being, of their specific mindedness, the better my ability to cognitively read them. So this is um, theory-based and also knowledge-based. And as I said, it requires detachment, neutrality, and lack of resignation for it to be as perfect as possible. Of course, cognitive empathy can coincide with effective empathy. These are not mutually um, exclusive terms. But research shows that when we are not resonating, our cognitive empathy is most accurate. So if you're really cool-headed, really calm, and I'm soon going to get into which types of people these, these um, ideal models of cognitive empathy are, if you're very cool and calm and you observe, perceive and infer mental states in others, you probably come up with more reliable readings than the, in comparison to if you were very heavily emotionally involved. Now, cognitive empathy works by the perception or inference leading to a representation of the mental state of the other. So by perception or inference, we develop again the idea. And actually Hume could be used as a basis for cognitive empathy as well. If we just leave out the last step of the idea transforming or tra traveling into our own body, into, into an impression in ourselves, we have the definition of cognitive empathy. So by seeing the impression on another, and by forming an, ad, an idea concerning her mental state, we are taking part in cognitive empathy. The last step is, is lost. And therefore, cognitive empathy is a form of translation of the bodily behaviors of others into a theory concerning their mental states. One of the most famous or popular advocates of cognitive empathy is Simon Baron Cohen, and here's a quote from him. Again, a quote, cognitive empathy involves setting aside one's own current perspective, attributing a mental state or attitude to the other person, and then inferring the likely content of their mental state given the experience of that person. So we note the experience in others and then infer a conclusion of their mental state. There's repetition here, but again, resonation has nothing to do with this. What's relevant is representations and acknowledgements of the impressions of others that lead into those representations. Then the third definition is proje oh, projective empathy. 
And this is something again which is highlighted in contemporary research quite a lot. In projective empathy we project ourselves into the position of the other. It involves simulation. So we simulate or try to understand the situation, the context of the other being that we're empathizing with as well as possible. This is something that's taught to children and research manifests that it's a very effective way of teaching empathy to others. This is the most basic understanding of empathy. Think of how you yourself would feel if that happened to you. Now in philosophy this form of empathy is referred to as the simulation theory. So instead of theorizing what others are going under, we simulate those experiences. Robert Gordon and Alvin Goldman speak of offline simulation of, other, um, of the mental states of others. And offline here means that we do not resonate with them. We do not undergo the exact same experiences, but rather we imagine what they might be. So if you try and empathize projectively with me, you try and imagine what it must be like to live so far away from light and warmth and everything in Finland. And you don't resonate with that. You just imaginatively un try and understand what it might be like offline. Simulation, then, is here the key term. Now, whereas David Hume gives the backbone to both effective empathy and cognitive empathy, Adam Smith is the source of projective empathy. He was a friend of Hume's and wrote a whole book just on this topic, which was called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And incidentally, this, for some rather nasty forehead of... of um, forefather of um, liberalistic thinking, the inventor of the invisible hand, he actually claimed that free market systems don't work without empathy. He again used the term sympathy, but this is why he devoted a whole book to the topic. He felt that it was extremely important for social philosophy, for political philosophy to take into account the role that empathy or sympathy serves in, also in economical systems. Free hands, free markets do not function properly without our instant capacity to know what others are going on, or what, what others are going through. Now, Smith spoke of imagination, the importance of imagination. Here we are to project ourselves into the setting of the other. And simulation here is the key term. There's again a quote. As we have no immediate experience of, experience of what other men feel, we can form no idea of the manner in which they are affected, but by conceiving what we ourselves should feel in the like situation. So we must just imagine and use simulation in order to understand what, others, what the mental states of others are, what the experiences of others are. And like Hume, um, Smith maintained that empathy is successful, it's accurate. So he argued that by imagination we place ourselves in his situation, we conceive ourselves enduring all the same torment, we enter as if, as it were into his body and become in some measure the same person with him and thence form some idea of his sensations and even feel something which, though weaker in degree, is not altogether unlike them. 
So projection and simulation and imagination, in his opinion, can reveal with accuracy, realistically, the mental states of others. What's crucial here is that Smith also accentuated self-directedness. For him, we can only understand others through our own viewpoint. He, uh, he claims that emotions never did and never can carry us beyond our own person. And it is by the imagination only that we can form any conception of what are his sensations. It is, these, it is the impressions of our own senses only, not those of his, which our imaginations copy. So from the claim of accuracy, he goes on to claim that our own self, our own experiential spheres, are the grounds of that accuracy. This is slightly confusing, but the point here is that we act as the reference point. We are directed towards ourselves. We are the source of our own knowledge. And when we imagine the mental states of others, our reference point, ourselves, is also the reference point of accuracy. Second to self-directedness, Smith also underlined context-directedness. So here, the situation, the context of the, of the other is primary. Sympathy, therefore, does not arise so much from the viewpoint of the passion as from the situation which excites it. So, although in contemporary terms we are often asked to take the position of the other, Smith underlined that we should take the context of the other in a broader sense. We do not, if you try and project yourselves onto me, you do not think what it is like to be me, but you think what it would be like for yourself in my larger, broader context to be yourself. So, what it would be like for yourself to exist in my context. And therefore, projective empathy is a form of imaginative, simulative transference, which is based on self-directed epistemology and contextualism. The fact that it's self-directed and contextual is really important. I'm going to get back to that in a, in a while. But what's relevant here is the imaginative, simulative um, setting. Then fourth, and now getting to the seminar topic, finally. Embodied empathy. Mark Shelley is one um, popular source here. Shelley spoke of embodied empathy, again using the term sympathy. But in a way that embodied empathy is used in these, in these days. He studied from the view that the problem of other minds is absurd, because we are not in... Um, we are not um, imprisoned into our own minds and atomistically separated from others. Minds do not exist internally, but in relation to others. And therefore the setting of cognitive empathy for him is misleading. We do not, from a detached, neutral viewpoint, try and infer the mental states of others. Because our minds are already involved with those others, and our minds have developed and grown in relation to the mental states of the others that we are trying to empathize with. So inference, for this reason, is misplaced in this context. How minds develop is by 
the way in which the body continuously communicates the mind to others. There's an expressive unity here. Constantly now when I'm speaking and when I'm looking at you and moving my hands, I'm expressing my internal, so-called internal contents to you. My mental states are becoming evident. And your mindedness, your mental states, are fluctuating and responding to those impressions in me. So mindedness forms what Merle, uh, Merleau-Ponty would have called kiesens. And empathy here becomes the immediate reading of and responding to the embodied behaviors of another. So we do not use imagination, we do not simply resonate, and we do not use inference, but we often subconsciously simply note the mental states of others by answering to them in our own behaviors. And what's crucial here is that empathy can therefore be completely subconscious. It doesn't necessarily ever become something that we would be aware of. So when two people are speaking to one another, they are fluctuating in relation to each other without constantly noting what they're going under. There's no awareness necess necessarily of this form of empathy. And this, of course, is based then on the legacy of phenomenology in a broader sense. Knowledge of one's own mental contents never take place in isolation from others. Husserl and Merleau-Ponty are relevant here. We presume the existence of other perspectives. Because for us to have a world, to have a reality, to have a lived sense of existence, is to also presume that there are others who equally sense it and see it and perceive it. And for us then, the world is always inclusive of other perspectives. This is how our mindedness, our mentation develops. So again, the problem of other minds would be absolutely absurd. It would be ludicrous to ask. Now instead of inference, empathy is then formed on immediate perception. Shela talked of perception here. Merleau-Ponty equally underlined perception as a way of understanding others. But this is something quite far removed from cognitive empathy. In cognitive empathy, perception simply takes place on the basis of theory of mind. Here we do not have a theory of mind, or at least it's not primary. For all these philosophers, also animals could have empathy for one another. You do not have to have a theory of mind. All that is required is for us to understand others as living, sentient, uh, sentient, experiencing beings, because our mindedness is grounded on that understanding. And therefore, shared embodiment leads into the immediate expressive understanding and co-constitution of mental states. So our minds, our mental states constantly evolve and move with those of our other embodied creatures. And in a state of intersubjectivity, intersubjectivity here is a significant term, we simply, via our own embodied behaviors, constantly read others, often, as I said, on an unaware level. So here the image of the wolves, there's embodied empathy happening there. It's not always something rosy and pink and lovely. And I, actually, I will emphasize in a bit how empathy can be quite nasty. It's not necessarily something lovely. Aggression, two people fighting, can be based on embodied empathy. 
And therefore the bodily expression is the mental content. There's a quote here from Scherler. It is in the blush that we perceive shame, in the laughter, joy. So the mental state is in the embodied um, impression of it. Or rather we can't even speak of the behavior as, as a representation. It is the mental content. And this is something that Dan Zahavi has underlined. He claims that expressiveness can present us with a direct and non-inferential access to the experiential lives of others. And this is quite a radical claim. We can have direct, completely non-inferential access to others. This is a huge claim. And there's another quote, when I experience, experience the facial expressions or meaningful actions of another, I'm experience, experiencing foreign subjectivity and not merely imagining it, simulating it or theorizing about it. And here Zahavi is explicitly attacking <coughs> cognitive empathy and projective empathy. Empathy is not something that has to do with simulation or imagination and it's not something that has to do with theory. Or rather, it simply takes place via embodied expressive expressiveness. And again, another quote. And now I understand. I actually have a huge amount of quotes here. <laughs> this is Mer do not hate me. This is Merlo Bondi's quote. We must reject the prejudice which makes inner realities out of love, hate, or anger, le leaving them accessible to one single witness, the person who feels them. They exist on this face or in those gestures, not hidden behind them. So this is a, an argument against internalism. A very similar argument was made by Scheler, as I argued, as I pointed out. Empathy, our understanding of empathy must start from critique of internalism and atomism. Our minds are evolving with the minds of others, and this is what embodied empathy is grounded on. <clears throat> Now, there's just a brief summary here of these four candidates. Cognitive empathy is the acknowledgement based on detachment of the mental states of others. Projective empathy is the imaginative simulation. Embodied empathy, the bodily expressiveness of others. And effective empathy, resonation with others. And what's crucial here is that there's a difference in all of these in relation to the positioning of the other and oneself. So in cognitive empathy, we are far away from the other. In projective empathy, we move ourselves into the other. So there's movement, movement towards the other. In embodied empathy, the other and the self become almost mutual. They meet each other. And in effective empathy, the other moves into us. This is the opposite of projective empathy. The other person comes into us because we resonate with them. How much more do I have time? Ten minutes. Okay. So. Okay. So now we're getting to the moral agency bit. Which of these candidates would be the best foundation or facilitator of moral agency? First, cognitive empathy. There's a problem with neutra neutrality. When we lack the experiential component, we can actually start to perceive the other as an object. So cognitive empathy can facilitate and enhance 
something that's quite alien to moral agency. It can enhance manipulation and control of others. And this is important. When we can neutrally understand, we can neutrally perceive or infer the mental states of other beings, we can quite easily manipulate them because we are not emotionally involved with them. And the most obvious example here is psychopathy, particularly primary psychopaths, are exceedingly good at inferring and perceiving mental states in others. They can do it, in comparison to other groups of people, much faster. In fractions of a second, they can particularly perceive emotions that have to do with vulnerability. They can instantly see it. Now, this enhances their ability to manipulate others and to control others. And I would go so far as to claim that cognitive empathy is a part of the atomistic, individualistic, self-directed and utilitarian ethos of the contemporary societies. It can serve amorality instead of facilitating moral agency. It serves self-directedness does not enhance our capacity for other directedness or openness towards the difference of others. And this is relevant in the animal context. Cognitive empathy is used all the time by hunters or farmers or other people who make use of, of um, other animals. Slaughterhouse workers are quite good at cognitive empathy. And this is something that's often mentioned um, people wonder, well, if empathy is so important in our relation to other animals, surely those people who work with animals can empathize with them most. And the answer to this is that yes, when it comes to cognitive empathy, they probably can. They have become skilled at particularly perceiving fear or various vulnerabilities in, in other animals. They can predict the behaviors of animals. But lack of resonation here means that they can also then instrumentalize and manipulate and coerce those creatures in a much more efficient manner. So therefore, the suggestion here is that cognitive empathy actually enables anthropocentric attitudes. The understanding that we are not moral agents in relation to other animals, that the other animals are not a moral question, that they exist some, somewhere beyond moral um, intention in ourselves. The animal as an object, the non-human animal as an object, can be grounded on cognitive empathy. Now what about projective empathy? As I mentioned, it's often been used in training various forms of other empathy, but again it meets problems, and one of the most obvious ones is atomism. The sort of atomism that Shell and Merleau-Ponty against. In projective empathy, the others in themselves remain mysteries to us. We transport ourselves into their situation and we do not become open towards their specificities and particularities, their difference. And for this reason, it can also be quite self-directed. The projection of oneself onto others can serve nothing but self-interest, own egoistic gains. And for this reason, Sean Gallagher has argued that projective empathy actually, actually cheapens morality. That it's something that cannot enhance our moral ability. Precisely because it's so self-directed. We're constantly using the self as a reference point. And here is the root of the problem. Using the self as the access point to the other.
And here we can lose the other subject and her original emotions altogether. The difference of others is not noted. So if you, there's a primary example if you try and think of a homeless person on the street, projectively. You might think, well, why don't they just get themselves together and sort themselves out and get a job because that's what I would do. This is projective empathy in that context at its worst. So a middle class person, when they transport themselves onto the homeless person, might not understand in the least bit her particularities and her specific unique self. And in the context of other animals, projective empathy is the source of accusations of anthropomorphism first. The claim that we project human mentation onto other animals. Projective empathy can serve anthropomorphism. Thinking that dogs or pigs are little people. And secondly, it can serve skepticism. The constantly accentuated attitude of cynicism towards one's capacity to know other, other minds. There's the bat from Thomas Nagel's famous article here. He, of course, argued that we can think that the bat has a viewpoint, viewpoint, but we can never understand the contents of that viewpoint. And this can feed skepticism, the claim that we cannot understand ever at all what it is like to be a non-human animal. Now, there's a quote here from Edith Stein, another phenomenologist, who argued, who wrote on empathy, and who argued, if we take the self as a standard, we lock ourselves into the prison, into the prison of our individuality. Others become riddles for us. So here, here she is attacking projective empathy without using the term. For her, simulation, projection, is actually quite fundamentally dangerous. We shouldn't do it. We are then far too self-directed, and others remain mysteries. And here other animals, non-human animals, can even become entirely inaccessible. For these reasons, the human self is made the reference point. And this leads to anthropomorphism and skepticism. Now what about embodied empathy then? Well, at least it's intrinsically open. In a state of intersubjectivity, we are constantly trying to understand the difference of others, and we are doing it quite immediately without even trying. And this is something that Scherler underlined, the opacity, the, even the murkiness, the incomprehensibility of another is acknowledged in embodied empathy. When we are dealing with somebody, talking to them, or now when you're interpreting in an embodied sense my behaviours, you are also noting that there's a lot you cannot access, or you are immediately, intuitively aware of the fact that you cannot understand completely what it's like to be me. This is the positive point of embodied empathy, but it also has a negative point, and this is the fact that it does not necessarily facilitate other directedness. Because intersubjectivity is quite possible without any intention aimed toward the other, other being. You can be intersubjective with your worst enemy. You can have embodied understanding of their behaviours and you can quite fluidly move with them. But that does not mean that your intention is aimed toward them. Instead you could be quite self-directed. 
regardless of all the openness that embodied empathy facilitates. Now, in the context of non-human animals, embodied empathy is used quite a lot. In contemporary literature, there's a move towards phenomenology when it comes to non-human animals and ethics. Amoris, no, Merleau-Ponty and Stein both argued that there's a tendency in us to understand other animals via embodiedness. So there's a human capacity for embodied communication with other animals. Merleau-Ponty spoke of a strange kinship between humans and other animals in his later philosophy. And a contemporary phenomenologist, Ted Toadwein, has argued that there's a chiasmatic relationship in the Deleuze and becoming another animal. I don't know if you are aware of Deleuze's understanding of of becoming an animal, but this is something that has to do with ethics and noting the animal perspective. It comes quite close to embodied empathy. And Todwan maintains that Merleau-Ponty can be directly used for this chiasmatic understanding of another non-human animal. And we equally ethologists such as Barbara Smuts have spoken of the importance of embodied empathy. Smuts spent months with baboons and didn't see any human beings and suddenly started to become one of the baboons. She speaks about becoming an animal in the setting where there are no, no human beings, where she has to become intersubjective with somebody who is quite different, in the start quite alien to herself. And for her, this embodiedness enabled, particularly, specifically, embodiedness enabled understanding the minds of baboons. She was a skeptic when she started, and after spending those months with the other animals in the wilderness, she became a huge advocate of, of animal causes. There's a quote from here, trust deepens, mutual attunement grows, and that elusive quality we call consciousness seems to extend beyond the boundaries of a single mind. This is very Schellerian. This, is, this comes very close to phenomenology. And there are various primatologists who are now speaking on these terms. The access to the mental states of animals happens like this. Yet, because of the problem with embodied empathy, self-directedness, this might not be the best candidate for moral agency. Because we can acknowledge the viewpoints of other animals and yet use them as instruments. The animals can actually be our objects, our worst enemies, even if we have embodied empathy for them. And primary examples of this are horse shows or circuses or even bullfights, marine parks, police dogs, where the human being moves in relation to the other animal but harms that animal severely. These are based on embodied empathy. So again, even though it's being glorified now to such an extent, this embodied empathy of ours, it has its drawbacks. Okay, almost. Final one, effective empathy. I'm going to leave the fifth one out because I don't have time, so I'm going to just speak about these four. Effective empathy. Um, this is something that's underdeveloped in psychopaths. They do not actually have effective empathy at all. So for me, the way to see if there's a psychopath amongst us would be to hit my knee and see if there's one of you who just finds it quite amusing and doesn't touch their knee. The rest of you probably would touch your knee if I hurt my knee. Now, because this is lacking 
in psychopaths who are amoral, who lack moral agency. It has been suggested that affective empathy might be a nece necessary ingredient in moral agency. It's other directed, because resonation enhances other directedness quite clearly. When we resonate with another, our intent, intentions are aimed towards her. And it's also something that facilitates openness, because we resonate with difference. And for these reasons, effective empathy could serve moral agency. Almost done. And effective empathy is quite possible also in relation to other animals. So one suggestion now in animal philosophy is that perhaps we should cultivate effective empathy. Perhaps effective empathy is something that should be brought into animal philosophy too, should be studied more as a way of understanding animal mentation. But the problem with this is that effective empathy is based on closeness and similarity often. We resonate most with those who are most like us. And this is something that was noted already by Hugh. So I might resonate most with my dog and find it quite hard to resonate with a fish. And this is the, the limitation of effective empathy. It facilitates openness to difference, but this might be quite limited. So there's, um, the openness exists, but it's quite partial. We might not be able to resonate with very different animals to the extent that would make us capable of being moral agents towards those animals. Now, I don't have time anymore, so I'm not going to go into the candidate that I have as a resolution to all of this, which is reflective empathy, but I'm just going to really quickly summarize. The point is that we perhaps should combine embodied empathy with effective empathy. And then again, go back to Edith Stein's philosophy, where reflection serves a point too. So instead of constantly just thinking about the instant moment of empathy, we should perhaps combine two forms of empathy with a reflective viewpoint and bring it to a metal level. But perhaps this suffices because now I've at least gone through, for, through four different interpretations of empathy and their relation to moral agency. Okay, thank you very thank much. You. <laughs> it's a shame to interrupt you in your disambiguation of the concept of